Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Um, a few summers ago, we did uh, a series on holy discontent, and those are the things that stir up righteous anger in us, the things that we know are wrong or unjust. And, uh, and some people shared their holy discontent from this stage. Well, a few months ago, our very own Jim Rabinuck, he, he alerted me about the International Day of, of Prayer for the Persecuted Church and wondered if we should address it. And uh, I agreed. I, I hadn't remembered about that date. And even in our correspondence, though, I could tell that there was this building holy discontent in Jim and suggested that maybe he's the best one to communicate it. And so I guess the lesson is, be, you know, be careful what you bring to the pastor's attention. Uh, Jim and Kathy have been a, a core part of NAC for years. They're in a small group. Kathy used to be on the admin staff. Jim now has, has taken leadership of the ESL friendship group and has really grown to love new Canadians. He led our Go Everywhere missions committee. And, and there's just a heart, obviously, to reach fringe people, our least reach people. We're going to watch a, a video before Jim comes, but let Let's just let him know right now how appreciative we are of his, yeah. So first off, before, uh, two things before I get started. Please don't be alarmed by the thickness of the sheaf of uh, papers. Uh, it's that thick for a rather practical reason. I have figuratively and uh, dramatically speaking new eyes that work perfectly well. Thank you very much for your prayers and asking. But I didn't take into account the, uh, uh, that I'd be doing a sermon and the adjustments required for this particular reading distance. You'll have to take my word that I'm using something closer to a 28-point font than, than a 12-point font. <laughs> it's like I'm reading a children's book here. Um, but if I don't speak with the ease and clarity of, say, Jonathan, uh, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, for those online, and maybe some here in the church too, I'm uh, shorter than what I might appear to you. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have been set up better uh, with the worship team and the songs, and Jonathan and the prayer, and Kamran and Malika, and their stories uh, for setting this up. Uh, I have to start by saying what a great privilege it is to be up here speaking to you today. Uh, I'd have to say it shows a great deal of trust on Jonathan's part to allow me to speak. Uh, but perhaps if Jonathan knew me as well of, as some of the other people here, he might have reconsidered. But Jonathan, it's uh, too late now. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Every year, Christians around the world set a day aside for prayer for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith. This day is an expression of solidarity with those suffering for their faith in Jesus. This is a day to join in prayer with those who share our faith, but not our freedom. 
For more than two decades, the World Evangelical Alliance has organized the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It's a global event that unites millions of Christians in prayer for the persecuted church. In Canada, this falls under the umbrella of Open Doors Canada, coordinated by a partner group of Christian organizations that are serving the persecuted church worldwide. These organizations include the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Intercede International, International Christian Response, Take Heart, and Voice of the Martyrs. So, why am I up here today telling you this? I can't list any formal credentials related to the persecuted church, either academic or any practical on-the-ground experience. I have, in fact, been rather blessed growing up in what is ostensibly a Christian culture and country in the West, standing on what has been a solid Judeo-Christian foundation. In fact, I think it goes without saying that collectively we in Canada, both Christian and non-Christian, have been blessed because of those traditions and that foundation. I'm speaking particularly about our freedom uh, to gather, freedom to worship together, freedom to own and read our Bibles, freedom to talk uh, to people about our faith. We have the freedom to pray for people. And while some here might argue that this is diminishing, this is still principally true. My only qualification, if you will, is perhaps that over the last number of years, I've been considerably bothered by this issue, particularly during Easter. Several years ago at NAC, uh, we would meet here with four or five other churches at Easter to celebrate Easter Sunday. It was always a joyous occasion, as it should be. People were standing, clapping, worshiping, uh, shouting to the Lord. But as we were wrapping up, I could not help thinking about the news that inevitably we would be hearing over the next week or so. Attacks on Christians, deaths, churches being burned down. I had wanted to get up to the open mic before the end of the service to remind people, before we left to enjoy our Easter dinner with family and friends, to pray for our brothers and sisters in places that weren't as blessed as we were, but I didn't. And uh, that has bothered me as well. And by the way, here's a note to all of you about the open mic. If you feel the Holy Spirit urging you on to say something, then you'd better get up and say it. Otherwise, at some point in time in the future, you may find yourself up here doing a sermon. And quite honestly, I haven't decided if this is a penance or my shot at redemption. <clears throat> I'd like to make one other related point. We come to church every week to worship and listen to sermons that articulate bi biblical truths, salvation, grace, biblical lessons, if you will, will, on dealing with the chaos in our lives, prayer, grief, God's plan for us, who we are in Christ, to know Jesus, to grow in community, to go be the church. And it strikes me that sometimes, even as we talk about this, we can become forgetful, or perhaps local is a better word, uh, in our thinking. Now, I'm not admonishing anyone or criticizing here, but we think of our immediate family, our small group, or friends, and neighbors. We pray for each other, our families, our communities, different ministries. We pray for missionaries and their outreach, and for outreach peoples, unreached peoples to hear the gospel. And we support those ministries, and that's a good thing. But it's not obvious to me that we pray for our brothers and sisters who have come to Christ that are living in countries where they are not free to worship, where having a Bible would land them in jail or worse, where their children are abducted, and churches, if they are fortunate to be able to worship in public, are raised to the ground. 
We seem to forget about the plight of these believers, and we must not. Most of us would be aware of the persecution in the Bible, how Jesus suffered unjustly, the teachings and warnings he and the apostles gave to those who followed Jesus, Paul's suffering in Acts, the martyrdom of the apostles. But the persecution suffered by followers of Jesus is not an artifact of history. It's unfortunately alive and well in the world today. And that's why I'm standing here to speak, uh, today to speak to you briefly on the persecuted church. What I'd like to cover in the next few minutes are three areas I think are of relevance. To very briefly cover uh, the landscape of the per persecuted church, to provide a biblical perspective of persecution, and that also includes what does God call us to do. Who here remembers the dramatic news story and photographs some seven years ago in Libya of the 21 Christian men, migrant workers, dressed in orange, kneeling with their ISIS executioners standing behind them in blackface? In black, faces masked. Evil is always masked. The 21 men, for simply staying true to Jesus and not renouncing their faith, were ruthlessly executed. Or, in July of 2021, the 140 children kidnapped from a Nigerian school by Fulani militants. This was just one of uh, several mass kidnappings. Or on Easter Sunday, 2019, when Sri Lanka was devastated by a series of bomb attacks on churches and hotels, more than 250 people were killed and over 500 people injured uh, in explosions carried out by little known local Islamist militant group. These incidents are perhaps the most horrific examples of Christian persecution today. Unlike the majority of incidents, news at the time resounded around the world. Some, however, may think that these are somewhat isolated incidents. In fact, you'd be wrong. Incidents of persecution occur daily. The vast majority of these incidents are rarely deemed newsworthy, and if they do make the news, the religious element, persecution, is often downplayed or ignored. This should come as no surprise, as, a, as I would say that we now live in a time where many in the West would consider Christians to be the persecutors rather than the persecuted. And if I can be blunt, persecution of Christians garners no sympathy here in the West because of that first attitude. Across Africa, Central and South Asia, Latin America and the Middle East, more than 360 million Christians face high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith in Jesus. This is a rise of 20 million people from last year. Christians are harassed, discriminated against, wrongfully imprisoned, and killed because of their faith, with Christian leaders often being targeted first. In many of these countries, there is limited to no religious freedom. Christians must either worship in secret for fear of being detected by the government, religious police, or terrorist groups, or else privately with severe restrictions and stringent monitoring. According to the International Human Rights Society, 80% of all religious persecution worldwide is against Christians. And as I've said, little of it makes the news. In 2021, according to the World Watch List compiled by the Open Doors organization, there have been uh, 5,898 Christians killed for their faith, 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings attacked, 6,175 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 Christians abducted. The above statistics mean that every day around the world, more than 16 Christians are murdered for their faith. 27 
are either illegally arrested and imprisoned by non-Christian authorities or abducted by non-Christian actors. 14 churches are destroyed or desecrated. A decision to follow Jesus often has harsh and fatal consequences. Discrimination and persecution take on many forms, such as being outcast from society, verbally or physically abused, slandered, being wrongly accused of coercing others to change their faith, abducted, forcibly married, imprisoned, kidnapped, raped, tortured, and death. This can either be state-sanctioned or societal. In Islamic states, where Sharia law is enforced, converts to Christianity often face the death penalty. Most of these countries prohibit evangelism of any kind. Christians who have converted from Islam face rejection from their families and are often pressured to recant their faith in Jesus or face the consequences. And to be a little more specific, persecuted around, uh, Christians around the world for whom we can prayerfully and practically help can be categorized into four groups. Families of Christian martyrs, those Christians and their families imprisoned for their faith, Christians suffering oppression and violence, and Christians forced to flee from their homes or countries. As you've heard, Afghanistan is now the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian, taking over from North Korea. The Taliban are actively tracking down Christians from existing intelligence, going door to door to find them. In North Korea, Christians, if caught, will spend the rest of their lives in a labor camp because they owned a Bible or because they wanted to attend a church. In some cases, they will be executed. In Nigeria, with a population of 211 million and 98 million or 46% of the population being Christian, there are more Christians murdered for their faith than in any other country. Nigeria accounts for nearly 80% of the Christian deaths worldwide. There are 97 million Christians in China making up 7% of the population. Surveillance in China is among the most oppressive and sophisticated in the world and has encroached on the religious freedoms of Christians and other religious minorities. New legislation has required China's religious leaders to love the motherland and to support the leadership of the Communist Party and the socialist system. It remains illegal for under-18s to attend church. Iran has a population of 84 million, including 800,000 Christians, or just under 1% of the population. Persecution often takes the form of raids on private home-based churches, many of which lead to arrest and prosecution and property seizures. seizures. For example, one Christian who has just been released from prison after serving five years of a 10-year prison sentence was jailed for the crime of attending house church, an act the Iranian regime calls acting against national security. Um, Vicky, can I get some water? My mouth is really dry. Thank you. Persecution is on the increase there because the authorities are aware of the growth and the number of converts and house churches, and they are determined to stem the growth with the overall goal being to exterminate the Farsi-speaking church and only allow Christian minority groups to operate. India, with a population of 1.4 billion, has 69 million believers, or 5% of the population. Persecution in India is related to religious, religious nationalism. The persecution of Christian Christians in India has intensified as Hindu extremists and aim to cleanse the country of their presence and influence. So, that briefly is the landscape of the persecuted church today. I felt that it was important. Thanks, Jonathan. Now watch me spill this. 
I felt that it was important to at least have some understanding of the extent of the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ are undergoing. And I've not even really scratched the surface of the danger, the deprivation, the hardships, or the personal stories of the individuals, such as Kamran and Malika, uh, or of the organizations that are in place to support the persecuted. Given the freedoms that we enjoy, I think it is difficult for Canadians to imagine the risk our brothers and sisters take on daily living in those countries which do not enjoy the religious freedom. But as 1 John 3.13 tells us clearly, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. From a biblical perspective, I think there are four aspects to persecution that we need to understand. Jesus certainly identified and taught that those who followed him would be persecuted and why they would be persecuted. Jesus understood the opposition that his followers would face from their families, communities, the world, and the devil, and he sought to prepare them. Jesus also taught how the persecuted were to respond and provided the means, the understanding, and the example to do this. The third aspect that I think is important to understand is just how can the persecuted face such trials? Where do they draw their strength from to face such ordeals, such oppression, such degradation and loss? And finally, how should what I call the Christian diaspora, we Christians that are seemingly far from home, those who are perhaps closer to the representation of the early church, new believers, little structure, scattered with few resources, assailed on every side, than we are here in the West to respond to the mid, in the midst of this suffering. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. The last sentence captures the point we should reflect on. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution in some form or another is guaranteed for Christians. It's a curious thing, but as I thought this through, to make a decision to follow Christ is both the easiest thing to do and the most difficult. It is certainly easy from the perspective of saying just a few simple words. I give my life to Christ. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The implications of saying those words, of course, are immense. And, to make it the, and make, so make it the most difficult decision to make. A decision that becomes a lifelong mission, perhaps a lifelong struggle. To give up your previous life and perhaps identity for a new life. To give up the worldly. To give up perhaps friends and family, old habits. To take on a new life in Christ. To die to the old self, to be born into the new. It is a decision that was countercultural 2,000 years ago. It is countercultural today. But how much more difficult is it for someone to make that decision for Christ, knowing the risk that they would be taking on? In Mark chapter 8, we are told that to follow Christ is to deny yourself and to take up the cross. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? To, den to deny oneself 
is to say no to the self-centered life and to center our lives on Christ. To take up the cross, that dreaded Roman instrument of execution, means a willingness to suffer rejection and sacrifice even unto death for Jesus if faithfulness requires it. Both conditions clear the way to actually follow Jesus, both as teaching and example in daily life. I think today we look at this verse somewhat metaphorically, here in the West for sure. As difficult a decision as it is to put your life into the hands of Jesus, we in the West perhaps give up the least. We in the West perhaps lean more on the abstract meaning of, these verse, uh, of the verse than the literal, to deal with the thorns in our side, to, parafra- to, to paraphrase Paul, rather than potentially to give uh, up everything, to hang on a cross. Here's the point. To make a decision to follow Christ 2,000 years ago meant you would be persecuted. To make a decision to follow Christ today in a large measure of the world means that you will be persecuted. And as I've said earlier, persecution of followers of the way, Christians, is not an artifact of history or an abstract notion. To know Jesus is to know persecution. And it is because of Jesus' name that his followers are persecuted. Jesus, with his disciples in the upper room and at the end of his earthly ministry, tells them and us, a servant, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. They will treat you this way because of my name. Persecution is a retaliation, a repudiation against righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ and those who choose to be his followers. The world despised and rejected Jesus when he first walked the earth and the world remains hostile to him still. The reasons Christian, Christians have faced persecution and the reason they will suffer until Christ, uh, Christ's return is simply that Jesus Christ is a son of God who has established the kingdom of God and now reigns in righteousness with all authority over heaven and earth. The battle is most certainly a spiritual battle as outlined in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. While the battle is spiritual, the manifestation of this battle does occur at a physical level. It is a perceived threat to power or identity, whether it be religious identity or national identity or political or the current orthodoxy or ideology of the day. And by the way, we here in the West are in the midst of this battle today. To quote John Stott, an English Anglican cleric and theologian who was noted as a a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement, it is a clash between irreconcilable value systems, a clash between those who believe, trust, and love the God of the Bible and those who do not, those who live for righteousness sake and those that do not. And it's no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. So how are the persecuted to respond? Jesus instructed his followers from the beginning of his ministry to understand their suffering and persecution as a blessing, even to rejoice and be glad on those occasions of suffering. The first instance of this teaching comes at the beginning of his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin with Godward attitudes, spiritual poverty, mourning, meekness, and hunger for righteousness, and then move to human concerns, 
mercy, purity, and peacemaking, and then conclude with two verses about persecution. I've always seen the Beatitudes as individual attributes, but in rereading them in the context of pulling this sermon together, I'm not sure that's the case, and perhaps I'm reading too much into this, or maybe I'm catching up to everyone else. But there is a flow, a connection between the verses. Each verse builds upon the last. To my mind, you cannot mourn and be comforted unless first there is a poverty in spirit. Otherwise, why would you mourn? You cannot be merciful unless you first thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you have no hunger for righteousness, why would you have mercy? The first attribute is necessary for the second and so on. And it is all, the, all of the attributes together, the collective, that lead to the last verses. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The blessedness that Jesus spoke of is a deep, abiding, unshakable joy rooted in the assurance of God's blessing, both in the present and in the future. Life in our Lord's kingdom is one of profound joy and inner well-being being that no person nor circumstance can take away. Jesus' qualification is that the blessed persecution comes for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake. And righteousness refers to the complete orientation of life toward God and his will. So, how are the persecuted to respond? I again quote John Stott. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor sulk like a child, nor lick our wound in self-pity like a dog, nor just grin and bear it like a stoic. Still less pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should and even leap for joy, as it says in Luke chapter 6, 23. To be perfectly clear, it is not the suffering or the pain that we rejoice, but it is the hope of God's glory to be revealed. It is not the suffering, but the cause that makes the martyr. Paul suffered greatly in order to faithfully serve Christ. He did so not, be, he did so not because he was a, a religious extremist or a masochist, but as it says in Galatians 2.20, because of his love for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of Paul's love for Christ and his grace, Paul did not harbor resentment and bitterness toward those who had, uh, who had inflicted so much pain and suffering on him. He had been forgiven much, and in turn, he forgave much. Like Jesus, he commanded all believers to do the same. Bless those who persecute you, persecute you. bless and do not curse them. We are called to follow the example of Christ and suffer as he did, that we should rejoice to share his sufferings and that we are to glorify God in suffering and entrust our souls to him. Not ever being in this position, I think this would be a very difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure how I would react, uh, perhaps instinctively as Peter did at Gethsemane. So, where then does the strength come from to not only face such trials, but to rejoice as well? How do our brothers and sisters cope with such conditions? How can their faith remain strong when it costs them so much? How can we cope under uh, such conditions? How can our faith remain strong? As I've gone through the text, to me, there are three reasons why and how Christians can endure persecution. Firstly, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. Because of this, we believe what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
We take this as an article of faith. We have confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We believe in the God of hope that fills us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have more. We have the resurrection. As Paul states, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And Paul goes on to say, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false, witness, uh, to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. If Christ was not raised, we have gained nothing, but he has been raised. This leads us to an understanding and a knowledge of our future glory that our suffering on earth is temporary. Because of the resurrection, Christian hope is forward-looking. Our final rewards and everlasting life are received in the age to come. It is only in this order that one would choose to suffer as Christ because of the example that he set to understand that suffering for righteousness is a blessing and we rejoice because of it. It is a source of joy because in it we are identified with Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Hebrews 10. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. I'd like to take a quote from uh, the Alliance Canada website. These families have chosen the narrow, narrow road that leads to life. They have been abused, mocked, oppressed, and isolated for their faith. Many of them have been disowned by their relatives. One family is on the run from those seeking to kill them. Several others were not able to be at this gathering because of increased threats to their lives after they publicly declared their allegiance to Christ. Our joy was tempered with the sober realization that for the people of this land, choosing to follow Jesus is choosing to suffer and perhaps die. Persecuted and mistreated, these are our brothers and sisters. While they are all taking a risk to meet together, it is evident that they adore Jesus far more than their fears of the enemy. They are convinced that their light and momentary troubles are achieving for them an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I'd like to read the full ver uh, set of verses from that quote from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentarily, momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For every Christian, regardless of the circumstances, hope is found in the promise that one day we shall see Christ face to face. Knowing that death will not be the final word gives us great hope. Ultimately, we shall see suffering replaced with rejoicing and receive our greatest reward when Christ ushers into eternal life, ushers us into eternal life with him and says, welcome home, my faithful servant. We have persevered. We have not shrunk back. If I may, I'd like to backtrack to my first point about believing in Jesus and ask a question. You may think that this is a trite question, a no-brainer, but when there's so much at risk, I would say that it's not. And the question is simply, do we believe him? Do we believe in him? Here we all are in church, believers, but this is not a question for a debate club where you can take a position for or against, not when you might have a knife to your throat or risk prison or torture. There is skin in the game. After all, there were many people that left Jesus. In John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000 and doing other miracles, Jesus, speaking to the crowd, declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At that point, many grumbled and thought Jesus' teaching was hard, and many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In the face of persecution, of losing everything, friends, family, being thrown in jail, being abused, kneeling in an orange jumpsuit with an executioner standing behind us, would we keep the faith? I've asked that question of myself. <laughs> and yet, so many have left the faith for much less. Romans 5 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I'd like to pivot these words slightly and ask another question. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would we die for Jesus, the sustainer of life, and bear the likeness of the man from heaven? If we make that decision to believe Jesus, knowing what it might cost us, and knowing what it cost Jesus, would we keep the faith? So, what does God call us to do? From Scripture, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, encourages us to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Those that we are called to remember are members of our Christian family. We are called to remember them as if we were together with them in prison and for those who are mistreated as if we ourselves were suffering. This act of remembering is not a passive act. It is not an afterthought. The act of remembrance is or should be as if we were bound together with those in prison or as if we were the ones afflicted. And that in part is why I have spent some time on the point of belief and the decision that we might make to follow Christ given those same stakes. To put us in that same position that our brothers and sisters are in, to consider the same costs 
so that we could truly remember as if we were together with them in prison or as we ourselves were once afflicted, to walk a mile in their shoes. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Romans 15 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Here again, we are asked to participate in Paul's struggle by praying to God for him. In other translations, this would be to agonize or to strive. So not only are we asked to remember our brothers and sisters as if we were together with them in prison or to take on their suffering, but also to take on the struggle through prayer. The power of prayer cannot be overstated, and that is why the Bible is filled with commands to pray without ceasing. We must take advantage of the freedom we have to pray for those suffering and to take on that same struggle through prayer. In my reading, the number one item that persecuted Christians ask for is not money or emergency aid or even Bibles. The number one thing that persecuted Christians ask for is prayer. We can be the means Jesus uses to encourage them through our prayers. There are many testimonies from persecuted believers who say they find hope knowing that their brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have raised a voice for them, praying that God will give them strength and to protect them. The persecuted find hope knowing that we have not forgotten them and knowing that, though persecuted, they are not abandoned. And finally, 1 John chapter 3 states, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives, for, uh, our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We're not to virtue signal, as so many are wont to do, especially today, but to show our love through real action, True love proves, proves itself by deed. So what exactly does that mean for us? It means that to know Jesus is to know persecution. Within this church itself, we're not that far removed from the persecuted or from those that live or have lived in fear of persecution, where betrayal and arrest were close by. Nor are we that distant from it ourselves here in the West given the spiritual war that is going on today as reflected in the culture wars that we encounter on a daily basis. It means to grow in community, understanding that our brothers and sisters in Christ are part of our community and we cannot abandon them. We need to remember our brothers and sisters in, in their suffering and circumstance and to pray for them and to stand with them. It means to go be the church. As we can, we need to stay informed and connected and aware about what is going on and to learn and understand more about the plight of our brothers and sisters through the various organizations, newsletters and updates that support the persecuted church. It means to provide a voice to the voiceless where we can through advocacy, again, most probably through a number of these organizations who engage with the government. It means to provide practical assistance through donations or volunteer work through those same organizations. So that's it. I would just like to finish with two quotes and one final verse. It's an amazing thing to read all of the testimonies of individuals from around the world amid the suffering and deprivation and the lost to see the faith that these people have in Jesus and that they do in fact live this out in joy and patient endurance and strength derived from the Holy Spirit 
and in the knowledge that their suffering is temporary and that a future glory is waiting for them, knowing that to suffer as Christ did in righteousness is to be blessed, and also knowing that there is a worldwide community of believers praying for them, and that while they are persecuted, they have not been abandoned. The first quote. The interesting thing is, we live with a sense of resilience, but we have never fallen into a state of victimhood or triumphalism. We realize that it is the cross of Christ. It's not the end of the road, road because there is a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is in that hope that we continue to live, and it's in that hope that we continue to carry that cross, knowing that it will be removed from us. And the second quote, If someone is willing to kill me for my faith, God must be powerful. And so in closing, given the power of the gospel and the power of the testimony and witness, both as we stand before Christ and together as a community in Christ, I think we can truly come to know, as the author in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, what we stand before. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a, trumpet blast, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven you have come to God the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel thank you